Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Det är sommar och det är sol. Eller nej. Det är lite molnigt faktiskt idag. Här på Gotland. Och eh, min yngsta dotter ligger och sover. Och min äldsta dotter ligger och vilar framför Mumindalen. Och min fru läser en bok. Och allt är så där långsamt och stilla som det bara är på semestern. Och själv sitter jag på verandan och tittar ut över vår trädgård och funderar lite på det här jag lärde mig av Ola Jennersten. Han som är sån himla expert på det här med biologisk mångfald och sånt där. Och hur man kan göra saker i sin trädgård för att hjälpa den biologiska mångfalden. Så jag sitter och funderar på liksom vilken fågelholkstyp jag ska bygga. Och ja... Hur det ska bli att slå med lien och sådär. Ja, det, det är trivsamt helt enkelt. Ja, om ni vill veta mer om just den grejen så kan ni ju lyssna på avsnitt 191 tror jag det var. Så kolla här. Nej, fel. 192. Och jag sitter också och funderar lite över intervjun som ni ska få höra nu. Som Lina har gjort. Den är full med en massa engelska ord. För intervjun är nämligen på engelska. Så fram med lexikonet bara om ni känner er osäkra. Det är mycket information i det här som är värd att ta in tycker jag. Nej, vilken kraftig underdrift. Den är ju väldigt viktig att ta in tycker jag. Ja, ni kommer märka. Och det tyckte ju även Mia och Lina. För att ja, vi gör ju många intervjuer i den här podden, men jag vet att när Lina hade gjort den här så blev hon extra påverkad själv och ändrade faktiskt sitt sätt att förhålla sig till den periodiska fastan. Hon gjorde små förändringar helt enkelt. Och den person vi ska lyssna på det är doktor Sachin Panda och han är professor vid det prestigefyllda Salk Institute for Biological Science i San Diego. Och han är då världsledande expert på dygnsrytm. Mm. Och han snackar bland annat om det här med att våra organ har en dygnsrytm. Och hur det påverkar oss och vad vi kan göra för att, så att säga, vara snälla mot våra organ. Och det är där den periodiska fastan kommer in då helt enkelt. Ja, hörni. Hoppas ni har det lika mysigt som jag har just nu och också har möjlighet att bara sätta er i en fåtölj på veranda eller ja, ni kanske ligger på en strand eller sitter hemma på balkongen i stan eller 
vad vet jag, och här kommer en geting och hälsar på hej på dig. Och det har vi lärt oss av Ola att getingarna, de är ju, kan ju vara trevliga vänner. Ja. Hörni, nu kör vi. Lina Nartby och Dr. Sachin Panda. Och förresten, jag måste säga, efter den här veckan så tar vi faktiskt en liten paus en vecka. Food Pharmacy-podden tar en vecka semester. Så att efter detta avsnitt så kommer vi tillbaka den 4 augusti. Ja, det här måste vara det absolut släpigaste försnack i Food Pharmacy-poddens historia. Men ah, det är ju semester så att, ja, det är som det är. Nu kör vi. Welcome, Professor Panda. I'm so honored to have you here and I'm so hooked after having read your fantastic book, Their Circadian Code. Thank you. I'm uh, really happy to be here. This is a book with the perfect mix of science, but also you translate that science into concrete lifestyle habits and how to use this science by implementing quite small lifestyle changes that can have a large impact on our health. Yeah. Yes, uh, you got it right. (laughs) (laughs) So let's take it from the beginning. What is circadian rhythm? Yeah, circadian rhythms are daily timetables of metabolism, physiology, brain function that happens in our body. These are pre-programmed timetable. And when we are in alignment with this timetable, then our health thrives and we perform at our peak performance. And if we don't, then we get closer to different disease. You can imagine just like in a college or in high school, there is a timetable for different classes to happen at different time. And if you stick to it, then you improve learning, you get good grades. Similarly, if we listen to our circadian rhythms, then our health thrives. Mm. It seems so simple, but actually it's not since uh, many of us today have actually a disturbed circadian rhythm. Yes, the, <clears throat> the interesting thing is we have been living with this circadian rhythm ever since we evolved on this planet. So that's several hundred thousand of years. But most of this, in most of this human history, we lived in alignment with the day and night cycle and the associated eating fasting cycle only in the last 150 years after the industrial revolution. And I would say mostly in the last 20 to 50 years, during this uh, digital revolution um, that we are in misalignment with our circadian rhythm. So we are just waking up to understand how important our circadian rhythms and how we can be back in alignment with our internal rhythms. So each organ has its own clock and you describe that these clocks create a symphony divided into three different rhythms creating the fundament for our health, and that is sleep, food, and activity. And if we wish to optimize our health, we need to keep the circadian rhythm in a balance. 
to make it more concrete for the listeners, I think a telling example of health problems when not living according to our circadian rhythm are when researchers have studied shift workers. Could you please tell a bit about this? Yeah, so almost uh, every, just like we can imagine circadian rhythms, we usually associate that with sleep-wake cycle. So that means we typically think that there is a clock in our brain that tells our brain and body to sleep. And during this sleep, when we sleep, um, actually it's not that our brain is just sleeping. Um, Brain goes through repair, rejuvenation, and it resets for the new day. So just like uh, we can now relate how sleep is good for health because if we don't sleep even for one single night, then our brain is not clear the next day. We feel sleepy. We have difficulty taking decisions. We are cranky, irritated. So just like the you can relate that to how circadian disruption or sleep disruption affects our brain, what scientists have found is almost every organ in our body has its own clock. So that means our liver has a clock, gut has a clock, kidney, heart, all of this, even in our skin, there is a clock. Sorry for interrupting. What do you mean when you say, for example, our liver has this clock? So that means the liver is pre-programmed to expect food at a certain time of the day. And because liver plays a big role, it's almost like a clearing house for the body. All the food that we digest, first all the nutrients mostly end up in the liver, and then the liver sorts them out, converts them from our food nutrient to nutrient forms that can be used by our body, and sends them out. Similarly, liver also breaks down some of the some of the, the um, you can say xenobiotics or toxins, and kidney does the similar stuff. Liver also produces many blood factors that are important for fighting disease. So then the question is, is the liver doing everything at the same time? Uh, No. So this is where the clock comes in. So the liver has a preferred time to digest, to sort out and process our digested food. It has a preferred time to break down some of the toxins. It has a preferred time to produce factors that are released into the blood so that our body's immune system can be fortified. So when I say liver as a clock, that means liver as a timetable, a daily timetable, by which it has to do certain tasks at a different time of the day. And at the end of the day, um, just like our brain needs to repair, reset, rejuvenate, the liver also needs some downtime. And in this case, downtime doesn't mean sleep. Downtime actually means when there is no food in our gut. That's the downtime for liver. That's when it repairs itself and resets, rejuvenates, divides its cells and gets ready for the new day. Mm. So in that sense, liver has a clock and it goes through that timetable. The same thing happens in other organs as well. I interrupted you because uh, I was uh, asking about the shift workers. Yeah, shift workers. So <laughs> uh, one thing that um, 
after industrialization started, one thing became clear is we need some people to stay awake throughout the night to take care of the society. And I call it, I call them the guardians of the society. Mm, That's a great word. Yeah, because without these nighttime guardians or shift workers, our society cannot thrive. Mm. And they are healthcare workers, they are truck drivers who have been moving food and supplies from one place to another, police officers, and so on. So when we ask the shift workers to stay awake, disrupt their sleep, and give us service, then they break their circadian rhythm because uh, they're staying awake against their internal timetable to sleep. Another thing that happens is during the workday, they stay awake late into the night or maybe throughout the night. And on off days, our society and their families also expect them to be awake during the daytime do all the social and community work, and go back to sleep at night. So it's almost like all shift workers are international travelers. They're doing 12-hours travel, time travel every week. And when it happens, then the internal clock gets confused, doesn't have a sense of when is day, when is night, what the person is going to do. So then what happens is... um, the liver, for example, when it is supposed to digest and sort out food, it thinks that it should be sleeping. And on the contrary, when it is, when it thinks it should be sleeping or repairing itself, that's when the food and digestion, all the nutrients come in. So just imagine if you have a house in which at random time guests drop in at random time of the day, then you will get irritated your productivity will go down. So that's what happens for shift workers. And what is more worrisome, it happens for all of their organs. So we know that shift workers are at a very high risk for many chronic diseases. For Mm. example, heart disease, liver disease, diabetes, obesity, even depression and anxiety. Mm. And every time you read a story in a newspaper about someone living up to the is of 120, 130 setting records. I bet you'll rarely hear a firefighter, even a doctor, um, living to that long. So that means shift work and the circadian disruption actually reduces our healthy lifespan and we may get closer to our death much earlier than we're supposed to. So they pay a high price to help all of us and to make the society function. Yes, so that's why they are the guardians of the society and mm. they are taking picking a high price. At the same time, we also have to be mindful, we have to think about what we can do as scientists to increase their resilience so that even in the face of doing shift work, they can sustain health and live a healthy, long life. So circadian rhythm research um, has benefited a lot from studying shift workers because shift workers showed us how disrupting circadian rhythm affects our health. Mm. And at the same time, we are also learning a lot about how regular people like you and I 
we may not be doing a card-carrying shift work, but we may be living like a shift worker. This is what I wanted to uh, you to tell us because I was so surprised when I read it. Because it, it, you might think, listen to this and think, well, I'm not the shift worker. Yeah. But according to your research, you are likely to be defined as one. Yes. So the definition of shift work by international labor organization and in many European countries, um, a, a person who stays awake for two to three hours between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. for 50 days in a year. So that boils down to one day in a week. And that I can guarantee you, uh, <laughs> if you live a life where you work during the weeks and have weekends off, many people stay awake at least one of these days more than two hours. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so if you now think of all high school students, college students, they easily stay awake late into the night trying to finish their homework or assignment. Many professionals were working. Um, they do stay awake late night to meet a deadline or to take a call from a different time zone. Mm. Um, and during normal time when not pre-COVID, there are a billion people who are flying in a year. So that means every time you fly, you disrupt your circadian rhythm. And I would say that anyone who is proud of being a <laughs> Uh, frequent flyer having 100,000 miles flown in a year, that person is a ship worker because every time this person flies, is disrupting the circadian rhythm by waking up early to catch the flight or staying awake late into the night when the person comes back home. And then now think of all the new mothers who have just given birth to babies. They do wake up quite a few times in the middle of the night to mm. take care of their babies. Similarly, any caregiver who is giving care to someone sick at home, and in many countries people do live with their parents or grandparents and give them um, the necessary care they need. So any caregiver also becomes a shift worker for a few days. So the point is when we lose sleep, when we disrupt our rhythm, we know it the next day. We don't feel fully functional. Mm. We don't feel full of ourselves. And when it continues for weeks, months, or years, then that's when slowly these disruptions accumulate to lead us to many chronic disease. That's one. And second is, many of us also live with many underlying conditions. So for example, autoimmune disease, or maybe a sensitive stomach, or maybe someone is at high risk for a migraine pain, or depression, and this disruption, the circadian rhythm disruption, by staying awake for a couple of nights or losing sleep for three or four nights can trigger or flare up the underlying condition. Mm. And a lot of people know that some who have autoimmune disease, if they have disrupted sleep or if they eat late into the night, then the flare up happens. Mm. So now we can connect all of this and understand how staying in sync with our internal rhythms pays a huge dividend in terms of a long, healthy lifespan.
So today we suffer from chronic diseases that doesn't only affect the life of individuals and their families, but also puts a high strain on our health budget. And the medicine we take for chronic diseases do not cure, but only milder the symptoms. So good news is that your research shows that by making small lifestyle changes to live more according to our natural circadian rhythm could have a huge impact on many of the lifestyle-related diseases today. Yeah, so these are uh, very important points. And I would say that, you know, when you think about circadian rhythm, uh, what actually happens in our body is at different time of the day, almost every single hormone in our body, every digestive juice enzyme in our gut, every brain chemical or neurotransmitter, um, and even every gene in our genome rises and falls at different time of the day. Mm. And all of this symphony is, of course, um, predetermined by our circadian rhythm, but we can be the master conductor of that symphony because our circadian rhythms are dictated to a large extent by when and how many hours we sleep, when and for how many hours we eat during the day, and when we exercise. So in that way, by just paying attention to this when aspect, when you go to sleep, how many hours you sleep, when you start eating in the morning, what is your last meal, and how many steps you take in the morning or afternoon, these three or four factors, gives you that you know, awesome power to be the master conductor of nearly 20,000 genes, all the hormones, everything in your body. That's what we call epigenetics, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's it's more than epigenetics because epigenetics has long-lasting impact. Yes, some of it is epigenetics and some of it is very acute. Like even one day, if you stay in sync, you actually improve your rhythm for that particular day. Um, and you may have a little bit uh, epigenetic imprint for the following days. Mm. Yes, you can say that it's epigenetic. Um, so what happens is when we take medications, uh, every medication targets one or two molecules, chemicals, or hormones in our body. Uh, but at the same time, your daily habits actually have influence over thousands of these molecules. So when you combine the right medicine with your circadian rhythm, then you amplify the benefit of that medicine um, so that you get a much better outcome from the medicine. So for example, people, uh, and also taking the medicine at the right time. And the best example is uh, if you want to relate, for example, if you get an infection and you are given antibiotics, Taking the antibiotics doesn't give you the freedom that you can still go back and uh, stop washing your hands and uh, be untidy. You still have to combine that antibiotics with sanitation to get the best benefit of the antibiotics. Mm. Similarly, for most chronic diseases, the medicine doesn't give you the freedom that you can go back and eat unhealthy 
Um, simple example is if someone is diabetic and is taking a diabetes medication, that doesn't mean that the person is given freedom to go and drink sugary drinks, alcohol, and sugar treats all the time. This is common sense. Yeah. So that's why the next common sense is um, whatever medicine you are taking, if you are in alignment with your circadian rhythm, if you sleep well, if you eat within a certain number of hours and exercise a little bit, then you amplify the benefit of that medicine. So in that way, you can say that having a robust circadian rhythm is a multi-solving approach to health because it affects our brain health. Having a good rhythm improves our gut health, our liver health, our heart health, and even improves our immunity and body defense so that we are more resistant and resilient against infectious disease such as COVID-19. Um, so in that way, we can divide the impact of circadian rhythm into three phases of our health. One is preventing the disease. Second is, if you somehow get the disease, then maintaining that circadian rhythm, sleeping well, eating within the next number of hours, and doing a little bit of exercise will help you get out of the disease or cure your disease much faster. And then the third one is, we know that even if we are cured, there are some symptoms that linger with us. For example, a cancer patient may get cured of the cancer and tumor by surgery, but the impact of that treatment lingers for many, many years. Many cancer patients are actually at a high risk from diabetes and heart disease. So we can reduce the adverse effect. We can reduce the symptom. We can bring back people to their full productivity and um, full performance by following circadian rhythms. So in that way, this is for our lifelong practice. And this is free and it doesn't give you any side effects. Yes, it's free. Um, for example, uh, my research has shown that um, bright daylight, you don't have to look at the sun, just being outside in the bright light during the day is an antidepressant and people in many northern countries know that because in winter time people get depressed and a lot of people use uh, light bright light source to reduce depression or just feel happy just imagine daylight is the best antidepressant it's plentiful and free <laughs> and then i must tell you that i'm now sitting in stockholm and i called you five o'clock and then it has been dark since three Yeah. <laughs> and when I wake up in the morning at seven, it's pitch dark. So yes. uh, right now we're living in uh, darkness, but even more important to get out and uh, during the few days of light. Yes. Uh, you talked about a medicine. Yeah. And this is also the case that when you take your medicine during the day, since it's the focus of a medicine is uh, to target a specific uh, organ or task in the body. Mm -hmm. um, I've heard you say that, um, for example, you benefit if you take blood pressure medicine in the night. Is, is that correct or did I misunderstand? No, that's true. So uh, there are different aspects of uh, medicine timing. One is uh, a common sense 
is you should not take your sleep medicine in the morning if no. you want to sleep at night. <laughs> yeah, that's that's <laughs> because, good. <laughs> because we know that if we want to, the brain has to sleep at night, so we have to take the sleep medicine at night. But similarly, a blood pressure has a program that it should go down at night time. Mm. So then if you're taking a blood pressure lowering drug, it makes common sense that you should take the drug at night time. Um, so there are many common sense, I would say there are common sense aspects of this medicine taking. And once we understand why we're taking the medicine um, and if there is a natural rhythm to it, then we can align that. Mm. Then the second is um, sometimes the symptom may be at one time of the day, but interestingly, you should take the medicine at another time of the day to get the best efficacy. And one example is people who have arthritis pain in their joints, they feel very stiff in the morning. They can't even get out of the bed or they have so much pain that they can, they're not fully functional. They take arthritis pain medication and people might think that getting up and taking the medicine the first thing in the morning should give them the best benefit. But actually, the bodily process that leads up to that pain, that begins at night time. So that means if you want to reduce the arthritis pain in morning, then the pain medication should be taken at bedtime. And there are many research that have shown that, yes, that's true. Um, to reduce your morning pain, you should take the medicine before going to bed when you actually don't have the pill. Mm. Um, so similarly, now more and more research is coming out showing different cancer drugs may have different time when they should be given. Um, some cancer drugs are good for morning, some are better in the afternoon. And even surgery, there is a beautiful study that came out of Europe showing that heart bulb replacement surgery, if done in the morning, actually have better impact in keeping the patient alive and in much better health, even after two to three years down the road. Wow. That was really surprising. Because <laughs> uh, I think right after the surgery, the first few hours after the surgery are the most important time when many of the healing process begin to uh, start. And they have a domino effect. So then it makes sense that different time of the day may be better for surgery. And now that we are faced with COVID-19 and we're thinking about vaccination, whether it's flu vaccine or COVID vaccine, there's also a good deal of studies done, of course, not on COVID-19 vaccine because it's new, but for flu vaccine and other vaccines showing that it's much better if you have slept well for the last three to four days before taking the vaccine. And second is if you take the vaccine in the first half of the day, that means before noon, then you are more likely to build up that immunity much sooner and much stronger. Wow. So at, so at least before getting ready for taking the COVID vaccine or flu vaccine, just keep in mind not to do any nightly work, not to you should not have traveled international. Of course, no one is traveling these days. No. Um, at least 
at least get good night's sleep for three to five days mm. and schedule your appointment for taking the vaccine in the first half of the day. That's a very good point. I just need to get back to the blood pressure medicine. Just a quick yeah. question, because this is a very common medicine yeah. that people have today and can have from quite early age. Yeah. But I wonder, many doctors say that since the blood pressure goes down in the night, many people take the medicine when they wake up in the morning. But this is actually not the best. Yeah, so this is a... Uh... So there are many studies that were done before, but they were smaller number of patients. But finally, a couple of years ago, a Spanish study came out showing they followed 19,000 patients over several years and looked at the habitual time of blood pressure medicine. The beauty of the study is they tried, they actually cataloged different types of blood pressure medicine. It's not only one type. Uh, different types of blood pressure medication targeting different molecules in our body. But they came to the same conclusion that those who took blood pressure medication in the evening are more likely to stay healthy and may not have a heart event, heart attack or heart failure for the, several, for the next several years. Mm. The point is this, that people who, get, who have high blood, blood pressure if they have that high blood pressure during nighttime, then they're more likely to get heart attack and other cardiac events. But even having a slightly higher blood pressure during daytime that actually goes down at night is a good thing for the heart because actually the heart is getting, or the body is getting a little bit depressed. So the most important thing is if you somebody has blood pressure, it's actually more much better to check blood pressure both in the morning and just before going to bed to see whether your blood pressure is actually going down at night. And if it is going down, that's a good sign. If it is not going down that much, then that's when you should consult your doctor and ask whether you should change your medication timing or even change the strength of the medication I haven't changed the medication. But that nighttime blood pressure dipping is the most important thing for keeping a heart healthy. Mm. So timing, you say, is everything. And one of the most important issues in our circadian rhythm is when we have our first and last bite in a day and not what we have. Well, I won't say what we have because between that morning, first bite and last bite, if we keep eating cookies, then it's not going to be good for our health. Mm, of <laughs> if we take, yeah. So the point goes back to the same thing that our digestive system, even our microbiome, our liver, heart, kidney, all of these organs are programmed to uh, digest and assimilate food for a certain number of hours in the day. And just like in the morning, suppose say your habitual bedtime is 10 o'clock and you wake up at six in the morning. If one day at four o'clock in the morning, somebody comes into your room, turns on a bright light and turns on music, then you'd wake up and your brain is not prepared to wake up and you feel really cranky. Similarly, our liver gut and our entire body is programmed to expect food at certain time. So the first thing is, 
if you're having breakfast at different time on different days, then it's almost like you are, you are irritating your organs because they're not ready to get the food or sometimes they may be ready, but food didn't arrive. So for example, if you wake up at six o'clock in the morning, but you find yourself locked inside your bedroom with no light, you're in the dark, you also don't feel good. So the same thing happens for all these organs. So maintaining a uh, breakfast time that you can stick to almost every day is very important from that sense. When I say stick to it, that doesn't mean that you have to be on the dot to the minute, at least within half an hour to an hour mm. window. So you should stick to your routines when you have your meals. Yes. So that's one. The breakfast is very important. And then the second thing is, as I said, our body, our gut, our liver, every, every, every organ needs some downtime or sleep. So just imagine if your brain needs eight hours of downtime, and suppose say our gut, our stomach also needs eight hours of downtime, our intestine needs eight hours, then another simple math to keep in mind is after we finish eating our dinner, suppose say we finish eating our dinner at 6 p.m. in the evening. There's no food afterwards. Although we finish, our mouth finished its work of chewing and swallowing the food, our stomach actually works on that food, digesting that food for the next five hours. Mm. So that means only at 11 o'clock at night, the stomach gets rest. And if you wake up in the morning and have your first coffee at 7 a.m. in the morning. So that means the stomach is actually getting rest from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So in that way, if you want to give your stomach at least eight hours of break, then you add five hours to it because that's how long it works after we eat our last meal. So that's 11 hours. We should not be eating at all. And actually, uh, the research says that, no, actually, for most of, a lot of people, the fasting time should be a little bit more because stomach finished its digestion, but intestine starts digesting after that. So you mm. need another three to four hours. So roughly, uh, no one should be eating for, I, when I say no one, of course, common sense, <laughs> use common sense, those type 1 diabetic or somebody who has hypoglycemia should not be doing this. But most people from 10-year-old to 100-year-old um, should refrain from food for 12 hours at least. And the best is if you eat within 10 hours and try to fast for 14 hours, that seems to be the uh, optimal rhythm for our body. And this is something that most of us can, most of the adults can do, eating, trying to eat within 10 hours and trying to fast for 14 hours. Mm. The second thing that we found is, even if you cannot do it every single day, if you can do it for five days in a week, that itself is good enough. And we have tried, we and others, there are now dozens of studies going around the world, and uh, many dozens have been published. They have been done on male and female, young and older people, people who are healthy, people who are just overweight, have no disease, 
People who are obese and those who have blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. And the result seems to be very similar. That is, almost anyone who does this sees some health benefits. It can be improvement in your gut health so that people have less acid reflux and heartburn. We also see improvement in blood sugar. Those who are pre-diabetic, they can reduce their blood sugar to nearly healthy levels. Those with diabetes, they can better control their diabetes. With uh, those who are taking medication, they see better benefit. And those who are not with medication, they also see benefit. Um, a universal observation is um, it improves blood pressure, both systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure, whether you are taking any medication or no medication at all. Mm. And similarly, in some studies, we see it improves liver function so that uh, liver diseases might go down. So some benefits are seen within weeks and some benefits can take up to months. Because imagine when somebody has a liver disease or someone has high cholesterol, that condition has happened over many, many years of bad lifestyle. Mm. So we don't expect that it will reverse within a few weeks. It might take even up to a year, six months to a year for some mm. of these conditions. For example, triglyceride might take longer time than seeing improvement in acid reflux or blood sugar. Mm. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So intermittent fasting is something that people have found very interesting because it has reduced so many problems. And you actually discovered it when uh, you did research on mice. Yes. Yeah. What did you learn when you transformed this research into on humans? Yeah, so in mice, uh, we can restrict their food. Um, very easily because we give them food or take them away and they don't have the freedom to reach out to the food. And in mice, um, we see numerous benefits even up to uh, reducing the risk for cancer or reducing tumor growth. 
Um, and then translating to human, of course, will take time because the human translation um, has various steps. The first step is to do pilot studies in healthy people, those who are done in 2015, 2015. And then pilot studies in um, people who are at risk for disease. So for example, overweight and obese people, those have also been published. And then um, pilot studies with people with disease. And then once we build up this confidence that it works, then we can do more rigorous studies. That's called randomized control trial, where we have more than 100 uh, patients who have been randomly assigned to um, the current state-of-the-art treatment mm. plan or the treatment plan with what I call time-restricted eating. Um, because in, our, in scientific literature, intermittent fasting doesn't mean what people think. Intermittent fasting is a very broad term that uh, includes fasting for five days in a month, uh, eating alternate days, fasting for two days in a week, and also fasting for a few hours um, in a day. So it's a very broad term. And if people want to get specific scientific literature or information, then the better term to use is time-restricted eating. We actually don't use the word fasting because a lot of people who actually need to adopt this lifestyle, they, are, they don't like the term fasting. So for example, if we ask, in, in many of our studies we have seen, we ask our participants, do you want to do intermittent fasting. They said, no, 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 I, I don't like fasting. My body cannot take it. Mm. But if we tell them, look, you can eat whatever you want during what you are eating within 10 hours, then they, they will say, say yes, yes. I can do, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can do it. Yeah, I can imagine uh, that actually. Mm. Yeah, so so that's why we are sticking with time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding for animal studies and uh so far, all these pilot studies have been published because it takes almost 10 to 15 years from initial animal study observation to getting enough human study results in multiple countries and in multiple locations so that physicians can feel confident to prescribe it. Mm. And during the process also, we learn about what are the potential side effects. So for example, someone with diabetes who is taking certain kind of diabetes medication, not all, they're a specific type. If they combine that with time restricting or intermittent fasting, and they immediately start eight hours eating and 16 hours fasting, then that can trigger dangerously low level of blood sugar. Mm. And in such cases, we strongly advise that people who have diabetes and are taking medication they must consult with their doctor, with their doctor, telling them, "Look, can you please check the medications I am taking, and whether I'll get any adverse side effect, such as hypoglycemia, if I do ten hours eating, fourteen hours fasting, or eight hours eating, sixteen hours fasting." Mm. And most doctors will immediately figure out whether the person is taking any medication that can have some adverse side effect if they combine that with time-restricting. Mm. Um, 
But for those who have blood pressure medication, they should also consult because it's likely that they may be taking a higher dose of blood pressure medication. And if they combine that with time pressure eating, they may even experience low blood pressure. So it's better to consult with your doctor if you're trying by yourself. Mm. The best thing is you can always look up and see whether there is a clinical trial going on within your town or city or nearby. And if you can be part of a clinical trial, then the doctors in the clinical trial will take utmost care of you because you'll be under very supervision. supervision. Second mm. is you'll get all these tests done for free, which might take even thousands of dollars to get done by yourself. And the third thing is you actually feel a great sense of fulfillment and contribution to the society. Mm. For example, in the U.S., there's a large study called Diabetes Prevention Program that involved almost 3,500 people. And the result from that study has been implemented and nearly, I would say, at least 35 million people all over the world follow the result from that diabetes prevention program. So just imagine if you're a participant in that study, this 3,300 people study, and now that is translated to 33 million people. So you can see you made an impact on 10,000 people on an average. Mm. So that's that's the fulfillment you get when you participate in a clinical trial and do it diligently. Mm. So, Yeah, wow. I was thinking about the time-restricted eating window you talked about. Yeah. It's very important to define here, what is a meal? Because many people yeah. think they restrict their eating window, but they're actually not. What you've seen is that people eat for more hours than they think they yeah. do. Yeah, so um, most of us, we don't think that a handful of nuts or cup of coffee um, doesn't do much to our body and should not be counted as food. Um, But here's a very simple idea if you are wondering whether something should be counted as food or not. If you are going for your blood test, fasting blood test in the morning, because a lot of us are asked, to come to the clinic with an empty stomach and get your blood drawn. Ask yourself or ask the nurse, can I have a cup of coffee before I give my blood? Can I have a cookie before I give my blood? Can I have this and that? And the answer is no. The -hmm. answer is no. You can only have water, plenty of water, before you come give your blood in a fasting step. So you would say that anything except from water... I would say except for water, but, uh, you know, in practice, what happens is, um, now let's go back to people like um, you might have woken up early in the morning to get to your job. And people always say, what about black coffee? (laughs) Because it doesn't have any calorie. Um, Yes, it doesn't have any calorie if you're not adding sugar and cream or milk. And, but at the same time, your stomach is waking up to absorb that caffeine, send it to your liver. The liver is sending to all your organs so that your brain wakes up and you feel a lot. So in mm. a sense, you have started the kitchen in your body. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, we have to be a little sensible in the pursuit of perfection. We should not 
give up what is good enough. So in that way, for uh, coffee, for example, I get this question a lot of time. What about morning coffee, even black coffee? I say, well, there are three exceptions. One is if your job depends on it. So for example, if you're a TV anchor and you have to go on the TV looking fully alert and reading that morning news or something like that, you have to be at work, then having a cup of coffee helps you. Second is, if it is a public safety issue, <laughs> you are driving early in mm-hmm. the morning and you're sleepy. We don't want that. <laughs> it's no. better to be caffeinated than driving sleepy. And the third one is, if that's the only love in life you have, sure, go for it. <laughs> okay, yeah, that I agree upon. But actually, I have uh, I tick into nothing of these three, so I need to uh, take my coffee a bit later. You suggest that you wait at least an hour yes. after you've woken up until you have your first tea, coffee, Bite. or yeah. yeah. So because that's when um, you know we wake up, we open our eyes, mm. get out of the bed. But our night hormones, which help us to sleep, they're still up. They take up to at least one hour and actually, in most cases, two hours to come down. Mm. Then our day hormones, which which give us alertness and energy, for example, corticosteroids, cortisols, they start to spike after we wake up. So Mm. this is a time when the night hormones are going back and day hormones are coming on to duty. So this is changing of the guards. And that's when you don't want to eat because these hormones have different effect on our food. For example, a pancreas actually sleeps at night. It cannot produce that much insulin. And the night hormone melatonin suppresses insulin insulin production from pancreas. So as a result, even though you are awake, your pancreas may not be fully awake for up to an hour or two after waking up. Uh, So that's why you should wait for an hour or two before your first bite. The reverse happens at bedtime because two hours before we go to bed, our night hormone melatonin, for example, begins to rise. So that means your pancreas is ready to sleep even before you fall asleep. Mm. So that means eating anything close to your bedtime, two to three hours before your bedtime is also not a good idea because your body cannot process that food very well, half of your organs have already gone to sleep. Mm. So now if you put all of this together and say, what should be my ideal circadian day? <laughs> then, yeah. then the formula is very simple. Your day actually starts on the night before. So you try to go to bed at a decent time so that you can be in bed for eight hours. Because if you are in bed for eight hours, you're likely sleeping for seven to seven and a half hours, which is turning out to be optimum for our health. Then after waking up, wait for an hour or two before your first calorie. And after you have your first calorie, then depending on your lifestyle, your family constraint or your commute time or what type of work you do, you can set a eight hours, nine, 10, 11, maximum 12 hours window within which you should eat all your food. And so between, between eight and 12 hours, 
Yeah, yeah. So the best, the good target is 10 hours because if you can do 10 hours, then you can still have a normal life. Otherwise, mm. eight hours becomes very difficult. 12 hours, you are kind of on the edge because if you make, if you cannot do 12, you go to 13 or 14, then you lose many advantages. So having 10 gives you that leeway that once in a while, once or twice a week, you can still extend it to 12 hours, have some family meal or hang out with friends. And then uh, reduce bright light and food two to three hours before going to bed because bright light will keep you awake. You cannot fall asleep. And having food close to your bedtime is not good for your gut health and many other aspects of health. Mm. Then during daytime, when it is uh, lighted outside, it's good to take uh, at least, good to be outside for half an hour or more doing some physical activity, even brisk walking is enough mm. because light is the best antidepressant and it's plentiful and free. You have to just step outside. And if you combine that with brisk walking, then you get your exercise also done. Mm. So in this way, it's very simple. Eight hours in bed, wait for one to two hours in the morning before your first meal, eat within 10 hours, no food, no bright light, two to three hours before bed and step outside for 30 minutes when there is daylight. That's simple. <laughs> <laughs> if you compare with getting uh, chronic disease or, uh, yeah. you know, being low in energy, this is a great recipe. Yeah. Because it's easy to follow if you uh, compare to uh, other things. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to think about, I mean, of course, after a while, you'll uh, get used to it. You don't have to think about counting calories, counting what proportion of your calories come from protein, carbohydrate, and fat, micronutrients, and other stuff. What happens is this builds the foundation of your health, and then you can add other stuff to further improve. It's almost like the base of your cake. Mm. If you don't have a base, then you cannot decorate the cake with anything. No, no, it's <laughs> so. hard. It's very hard. <laughs> I need to ask you about sleep as well, because if you go to bed late, can have a huge impact on our health in many ways. But what I learned from reading your book is that it affects the clock that switch on the important repair of damages in the body. Yes, uh, in the middle of our sleep, that's when our brain produces different hormones that tells the body to repair itself. The reason is, you know, you cannot repair a highway when there's still traffic when there are still cars and trucks running on the road. Only when they have stopped, you can repair a road. Mm. Similarly, our gut lining, for example, if it is like a road, then during daytime, we eat so many different food, how to digest that food with stomach acid, a lot of things go on. So we damage nearly seven to 10% of our cells in stomach lining every single day. Wow. And they have to be repaired at night. So this is when, in the middle of our sleep, um, our pituitary gland produces growth hormone. And this growth hormone triggers, comes down and tells 
stomach lining, and also many other cells, for example, our skin lining, the lining in our cornea, any lining that you can think of, those are repaired at nighttime uh, in, in the middle of our sleep. Not only that, uh, we also see evidence that when we have long overnight fast, the fasting time combined with sleep actually further accelerates or increases this growth hormone production and repair process. So that's why when you do this uh, 14 hours of fasting and you're sleeping in bed, you're in bed for eight hours, that actually boosts your self-repair. And why this repair is more important is if we don't repair our gut lining, for example, then many uh, partially digested food or bacterial cell wall or even bacteria and other pathogens can leak into our blood circulation system and then can trigger um, our immune system to have chronic inflammation or you can even have food allergy. So that's one aspect. Second is, you know, if our skin is not repaired, we can also get many skin diseases. Um, so this is the first barrier to our immune system. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting to see that sleep helps to boost our immune system by strengthening this barrier, by increasing that resilience against pathogens. Mm. Talking about growth hormones. Yeah then it's even more important for children to get to bed in time, yeah? Because... uh, Yes. Yeah. I mean, it it goes without saying, but I just had to put the questions. And you... I've read that it's a myth that we are genetically night owls or early birds. This is rather a habit that we have created and that we can change. I'm just telling everyone that might sit here and say, no, I, I can't go to bed before one o'clock. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we always feel because, um, you know, we pick up so many habits that affect our sleep that we don't even think about it. So, for example, a lot of people, um, we have a cup of coffee or espresso or hot chocolate or a bite of dark chocolate <laughs> or even a brownie in the evening or after dinner. And that has enough caffeine to keep us awake. And Mm. our evening or afternoon coffee has become such a habit that we don't even think to connect that with our habit of going to bed late at night. Second is, um, in many houses, particularly in, in northern countries, you may try to keep the light level pretty high inside the house to uplift your mood. But then two to three hours before going to bed, it's also common sense to reduce that light. But we often forget. So we have our lights pretty bright and our screens are very bright and that can keep us awake and we can go to bed very late. So particularly when somebody is complaining that they cannot go to bed before midnight, then it's important to pay attention to the habit. And scientists have tested this. So for example, um, one of the scientists I respect a lot, Ken Wright uh, Jr. in Colorado, uh, in his own lab, his own researchers complained that they cannot go to bed before midnight and he wanted to test. So he collected the melatonin level in every couple of hours when they are in Colorado 
uh, when they're in Denver in the lab. And he actually saw their sleep hormone was rising around midnight. But then once a year, they go up for camping for seven days. And during camping, there is no free access to coffee and plentiful of chocolate and all these caffeinated drinks. They have their coffee in the morning holder. They kind of spend outdoor. And in the evening, there's no bright light. It's only campfire and a little bit of light. And when he again measured their melatonin, he saw that, no, the melatonin was actually rising around 9 o'clock at night. And these people are falling asleep around 10. And mm. they could not believe that they <laughs> were actually sleepy around 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. Mm. So he has repeated that experiment. And a lot of other people have also experienced the same thing. If you have any doubt, then you can do a very simple experiment. Just stop any kind of caffeine after lunchtime because coffee can take somewhere between 6 to 10 hours to break down to half of what we drank in our system. And then uh, try to put all your screens in night shift or night light mode so that all the screens dim down and become little orange color around 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. And then make sure that you don't expose yourself to bright light. So all your lights indoors should be around 40 watts of light, um, warm white in the evening. And then slowly you'll, you'll also feel that uh, you will feel sleepy around 10 o'clock. <laughs> mm. So this is a very simple experiment anybody can do. And then you'll know whether you're genetically programmed to be a night owl or not. Mm. And in most cases, you are not genetically programmed. You are programmed by your habit, <laughs> which you can change. I fall asleep 10 o'clock every night. So <laughs> I'm definitely not a night owl and I don't need to try this. But I'm happy for the people who, who uh, yeah. as my best friend, who thinks she can't fall asleep before one. <laughs> so I also need to ask you about something I really loved. And that's the expression that you call social jet lag. Yeah. Yeah, I um, think that's a great word. Tell us. Yeah, so the uh, social jet lag is um, something, you know, jet lag is when we travel to a different time zone and then stay awake uh, for a few hours uh, before we fall asleep. So, for example, if you're flying from um, the west side to the, sorry, east side to the west side of the continent, then you may have to, you may have the luxury of getting an hour extra so that you will stay awake. Uh, but a lot of us, what we do is um, and on Friday or Saturday, we hang out with our friends or family and we stay awake, say, after midnight, having enjoying a good meal and then having some good fun. And when we do that, on that night, say, Friday and Saturday, both days, suppose somebody is staying awake late into the night. This is when we are telling our brain and our body that we may be in a different time zone because <laughs> we are actually going to bed two hours late. And then what happens is on Sunday, our body will think that, okay, so I have to adjust to the new time zone. So Sunday, although you may try to go to bed at 10 o'clock, your body is thinking that, no, it's a different time zone. I'm trying to adjust. 
So Sunday also, you don't have a good circadian rhythm. It's not in alignment. And by Monday, the body is confused because you're going to bed at 10 o'clock, but for two days, you had gone to bed at midnight. So that confusion goes on till Monday or Tuesday. So in that way, Friday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, half of the week, your body is confused which time zone you are. Mm. And it's almost like you are jet lagged because that's what happens when you're jet lagged. Um, Your body is in one time zone, but your brain is thinking you haven't left the old time zone. So you you tend to fall asleep in the wrong time and your body is trying to catch up. So your clocks are messed up. Mm. And this so is more tiring than we even understand for our bodies yeah. and our whole system. Yeah, because you may wake up, I think, uh, with a hangover or a mild headache and you think that, okay, maybe something that I ate last night, because this is also the time when we don't eat our usual food. We eat with friends and families and we might have prepared something special and we blame it on the food or maybe the loud music, or maybe the dancing you did. Uh, maybe that's true, but in most cases what happens is since her body is not in sync, uh, some people call it the food hangover, even though they didn't drink enough, they feel a little groggy the next morning. All of these are signs that our body didn't do its job at the right time because we are trying to force it to go to a different time zone. So that's why we call it, scientists call it social jet lag, and this is very prevalent. Um, there are some accounts that maybe 40 to 50% of people in Europe may be experiencing this kind of social jet lag a few weeks in a year. Mm. Um, and uh, this is something that we can fix. So, for example, if you want to get together with uh, friends and families, why don't you get together, like after COVID-19, maybe, get together for happy hour <laughs> that's begins yeah, I, I find it so easy because it's only you need to be a bit more creative on your social habits you can meet yeah. for long lunches or you could meet uh, exercising during the day or go for a walk or there's so many things you can do that is not only sit having a late night dinner on a saturday evening yeah. i mean that's that's nice also but if you start to try other things you might uh, see that it's just as nice. Yeah, so I think you hit a very important point. That is, our entire day or our entire circadian rhythm is largely determined by what we do between sunset and when we go to bed. Mm. Because that's the time when we are free. We as humans... We spend the entire day from morning until that evening, until we come home and unwind. Working for somebody else, uh, our life is controlled by our employer or by things that we have decided to do, or even people who are self-employed or farmers or hunter-gatherers even. uh, The day is dictated by doing something to earn a living. And only in the evening, we have our true human freedom that shows up. Mm. And that's also the most creative time, because if we think about human civilization, all the creative art, thinking, science, everything goes back to 
the fireside chat that our ancestors had mm. after they had their last meal and were sitting by the fire waiting for to become sleepy. So sharing food near the fireside and discussing stuff that's not related to daily living, but thinking about art, um, dancing, performing, singing, being philosophical, discussing politics, all of these things happen in the evening. And that's the cradle of civilization. That's also the cradle of our own social life. But we can do that without eating. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we so, can. So figuring out how to do that without consuming excessive food and alcohol is mm. the key to health. Mm. And that's the, uh, this is something that everybody has to figure out for themselves, how to do that. Uh, it has just transformed to a different way instead of sitting by the fire and uh, talking to your friends and sharing a little meal. We sit next to the TV or <laughs> our rectangular pieces of glowing objects, different mm. screens. A uh, lot of us are actually in COVID-19 and we don't meet people, so we are in isolation. So we order food or <laughs> we microwave some food and then we get on social media and interact. Mm. And so the same theme continues, but in a different form. Mm. And if we pay a little attention, we can make it more healthy interaction and we can have the fireside chat and our... Um, true social interaction without food and without depriving our sleep. <laughs> That sounds uh, really good. I want to tell everyone before we end this that I actually downloaded the app. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can take part if anyone wants to take part and really track the way you eat and get advice on how you can eat and sleep and how you can change your daily habits in order to optimize your health. You can take part in your research, yeah? Yes, so a few years ago, we um, almost five years ago, we started this. Uh, we thought, let's see when people eat. And we made a very simple lab called My Circadian Clock. And the... Uh, thinking was very simple that people can log their food. And one thing is when you start logging your food, you'll know how many times you are eating. And some people get surprised. They say, oh my God, I had no idea that I snack that much. Or I mm. drink coffee four times a day. So just the act of logging makes you aware. So it's almost like if you don't, if you want to change how you appear, for example, to comb your hair, you have to stand in front of a mirror to comb your hair. Similarly, to change your eating pattern, first thing you have to do is um, stand in front of the mirror. So in this case, log what you eat mm -hmm. when you eat. And then the next step is after logging for one week um, with your usual habit, usual lifestyle, one week or two weeks. Once you have your idea, okay, so I'm having this late night dinners on Tuesday and Wednesday or late night dinners on Friday and Saturday, then you can decide how to um, change your behavior and select a 10 hours or 12 hours eating window or eight hours eating window and try to do that. And since it's a research app, it's run by the Salk Institute where I work. 
we keep all the information confidential. We don't share the information with any commercial entity. And um, it's strictly for research purpose. Uh, the interesting thing is there are a lot of other commercial apps now. They do similar stuff and people do get, um, they're free to participate in those commercial apps or contribute to research by participating in our study. Anyone anywhere in the world who understands English can sign up. And on the website, we do have quite a few blogs that talk about what is circadian rhythm, what is the impact of light on circadian rhythm, for example, why there is a clock in the liver, many of the topics that we cover. Those are also discussed in blogs. There are also links to some of the videos. So it's a great resource. We have tens of thousands of people from all over the world who are participating, sharing data. And this way, we are also learning how your age, gender, work habit, um, ethnicity might affect your food choice, your sleep habit. And this will enrich public health and other, uh, other researchers to come up with very specific way to help people adopt a better circadian rhythm. So for example, what may be good for you, who is a, maybe someone is a teacher who wakes up at seven o'clock to get ready to teach in a high school, the best circadian lifestyle for the teacher may not be good for a firefighter who has to go to firehouse three to four days in a week and has to stay awake 24 hours attending to fire calls. Mm. And same thing, for example, someone who is a student who has to stay awake till midnight and catch up with homework, um, he or she may need a slightly different circadian lifestyle. So this is the goal of this large project that we are doing all over the world, to find how different, how we can, you can say, personalize optimum circadian lifestyle for different people based on their profession as gender, where they live, cultural norms, etc. Mm. So I'm very eager to start this and uh, <laughs> I you. will uh, I will report to you all and uh, also to you, of course, on uh, yeah. on what happened. Maybe Thank I uh, belong to one of those people who eat uh, eight times a day without being aware of it. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy that you took your time to uh, have a chat with me about this. And I'm so grateful for the research you're doing. Thank you so much, Nina. Mm-hmm. And I'm also very excited about what you're doing because you are actually transmitting and transforming the translating the scientific world, scientific findings in a very distilled and tractable way to millions of people and you are changing their lives. Thank you. Thank you. Du har alltså lyssnat på Food Pharmacy-podden med Lina Nertby och Mia Klase. Och i detta avsnitt medverkade professor Sachin Panda. Jag heter Sebastian Ring och står för musik och redigering. Och vill du ha mer av oss på Food Pharmacy så finns vi på foodpharmacy.se och på Instagram under namnet food underscore pharmacy. Tack, hej! 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 